Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Good evening, America, and welcome to this Just the News, Real America's Voice news special, The War on Black America. Tonight, we'll be taking a look at the economic, political, and social forces that are impacting African-American communities across this country, from failing schools and rapidly rising inflation to unaffordable housing and the epidemic of violent crime that is ending far too many black lives far too early. And we'll also explore whether the prescriptions that many in Washington are offering from critical race theory and slave reparations to ending voter ID and defunding local police, are they really what black Americans need or want? Polling suggests there's a disconnect between Washington's current approaches and the realities on Main Street America. Now, before we get started, a special word of thanks for tonight's sponsor, offthepress.com, a brand new news site run by the former editor of the Drudge Report, Joe Curl. Off the Press is the fastest, surest way to get all the headlines you need to know in one place. And they are chosen by a team of journalists with more than a half century of experience with the speed and reliability you need for today's fast paced world. If you haven't checked them out, go to offthepress.com right now and bookmark it. It's a must read site. Now, our first guest tonight is Ken Blackwell, who spent many years listening to and serving his constituents in Ohio, first as a mayor, then as a state treasurer, and finally as Ohio's Secretary of State. Later, he served as an ambassador to the UN Human Rights Commission. And he has been one of the most poignant voices, warning about the disconnect between what Washington has been offering and what black America really needs and wants. Secretary Blackwell, it's an honor to have you join us. Good to be with you. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you've seen these prescriptions coming from Democrat one Washington and major urban areas, defund the police, end voter ID, open the borders, teach critical race theory. Are these the solutions that African-Americans in America really want? Absolutely not, John. You know, in the 60s, Dr. King said that we had a choice as a nation. We could choose chaos or we could choose community. Uh, the left has chosen chaos because what they want to do is disrupt the foundation of what has made us an exceptional nation. And that is that as Dr. King and the civil rights movement uh, believes, it was about the character of, of, of a person, not about the skin color. 
and so this whole effort to divide us on the basis of the ethnicity or race is tantamount to a strategy that has been used uh, worldwide by status uh, advocates, uh, mostly Marxists and other kinds of uh, totalitarians. Yeah, such an important point that uh, these are the tactics of those who are totalitarian. Now, when you talk to black teachers, parents, students, workers, business owners, what are they saying are the most critical issues they want fixed and how do they want their government to help them fix them? You know, let me just say, John, that the family is the incubator of liberty uh, in our, our, our culture. Uh, and the reason for that is that children are very vulnerable. And so what mothers and fathers want for their children and themselves is first public safety. Then they want uh, a quality education. And then they want the ability to work and to be self-sufficient. That's what most black folks in this country want because that's what most Americans want. They're not locked into this battle of ethnic groups or racial groups. They in fact want to be part of an opportunity society. And when you see uh, leaders, political leaders in our cities choosing uh, not to make our, our, our cities fields or dreams, but because they are talking about defunding uh, the pol police, they're talking about uh, racial and ethnic division. They are turning our cities into killing fields, not fields of dreams. And, yeah. and, and, and people are gonna start pushing back against that. Uh, yeah, the crime wave and the violence and the, the toll of black on black crime is unbelievable. It's historic, at historic proportions. On the way back from New York recently, I stopped in Newark and grabbed uh, a quick lunch in, in a black owned cafe and began striking up some conversations with the patrons. And one of the things that really surprised me was how much rising prices driven by the inflation that we've recently seen is having an impact on not only the black community, but also small businesses. Uh, are you seeing the same thing? Are you beginning to see black businesses being hurt by this inflation, the supply, uh, lack of uh, supply chain uh, continuity? Oh, absolutely, John. You know, you know, what, what, what President Trump understood is that if you, in fact, you give people a chance to work and become independent, you give people a, 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 a chance uh, to, to live their lives with comfortable incomes and, and, and stable prices, you accelerate growth and progress. What the left has done, what the Biden administration has done in disassembling our, our energy independence is they've, they've drove prices up at the gas a tank that drove food prices up. And as a consequence, you know, you, not only do you have uh, people who are now being hit by inflation across the board, uh, those essentials to a good, comfortable life are in fact being pushed out of reach by most, most black Americans. Yeah, there was a young woman at the restaurant. She said, listen, I always put $20 in my gas tank and this time I, I didn't fill me up near as much and I had to make a choice. Was I gonna get extra food or, or fill up the tank a little further? Those are the sort of real life choices that people are making. It's really remarkable. Now you've been outspoken that the left is using issues like critical race theory, defunding police and voter ID as smokescreen, sort of to deflect attention from the Democratic Party's approaches 
to failed schools, rising crime, and lost economic opportunities. Describe a little bit what do you mean by that smokescreen? Well, it's it's a diversion. I mean, what what, what they've chosen is division, uh, and what they what they fail to tell us is that this country in 245 years has made progress when responsible leaders and grassroots citizens have chosen community uh, and, 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 and worked together. They would have you to believe that we are stuck in 1619. That's part of the New York Times 1619 project. History, John, as you know, is a, is a process and it is moved forward by human agency. Uh, and so uh, I, I think what, 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 what they want uh, is not free citizens moving progress through human agency. They want subjects. That's what totalitarian, authoritarian, and big welfare state managers and, and elitists, that's what they want. They don't want independent citizens. They want subjects that are dependent on their largesse. What has made us different is that what our framers of our constitution uh, and the founders of our, of our country believed and that is that our fundamental human rights are not grants from government, they're gifts from God. The myth is pushed by the left is that they can run God and faith out of the public square, disassemble the family, build dependence, and they become God. The, this disconnect that's going on between official Washington and uh, the real life Americans that are living through these challenges is becoming more and more pronounced. And the question I have for you is, is black America likely to see, what are they likely to see over the next four years uh, under a Biden presidency? And what alternative can conservatives, Republicans and others offer? Well, look, what they will see is, as I said before, they will see their living space become killing fields. They, in fact, will see escalating prices, whether it be prices at the pump or energy to warm or cool their homes. They will see because of a, a rising price, uh, rising uh, inflation uh, and, and a radical slowdown in, in economic growth, uh, they will see joblessness uh, prevail. And this government would build dependency by, in fact, keeping a disincentive in place from 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 working. If, in fact, you can get more income by not working and becoming more dependent on an elite bureaucratic central or federal government, that's their desire. We will, in fact, I think, choose freedom. You know, the, 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 the baseball player uh, and legend Satchel Paige once said that it is very difficult to steal second base if you want to keep one foot on first base. We are going to take a risk for freedom. We're not going to be locked into a stale status quo. And I can tell you that push for freedom won't be the property or the actions of one racial or ethnic group. It will be freedom-loving Americans working as community to break through the left's chaos. Oh, those are such important words. And also, Satchel Paige, one of my favorite baseball players. I love baseball, and <laughs> it's hard not to admire his amazing achievements. It really is. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, many thanks for your time and your insights today. 
Uh, very important to have those on this show. Always good to be with you, John. God All bless. Right. You too, sir. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, the former police chief from Detroit, James Craig, will be joining us. He's become so disillusioned with the city's decades of Democratic role, he's decided to run for Michigan governor as a Republican. Find out why right after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back from the break. we got a very special guest now. Joining us now is James Craig, the former chief of police for the city of Detroit and now a candidate for Michigan governor in 2022. Chief Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, John. Glad to be here. It is an honor to have you on. Chief, you oversaw one of the America's largest and most diverse police departments in a city where crime, poverty, and failing schools are also uh, been a challenge for many decades. Are the folks in Washington, the people at the Justice Department in Congress, really giving the mostly black communities like Detroit what they need, or is there some disconnect? You know, I gotta tell you, John, and I've said it uh, all over, uh, there is a disconnect. Uh, we appreciate that they're trying to do something, but we're talking about scratching the surface. You know, uh, this violence really started to erupt around the country uh, following the tragic death of George Floyd. Right. Uh, but at the same time, and I won't even put this on the pandemic, because as I've been watching what's going on in, in so many major cities, it goes a lot deeper than that. What's happening is, and I guess the uh, D.C. chief said it recently. Yeah. I've said it two, two or three months ago. Our criminal justice system is broken. Let me just say this. The first thing that always happens, we're going to point at the police. What are the police not doing? It's the police fault. Like uh, early on, someone on the far left would blame police for rising crime. No, no. The crime is rising because of the anti-police rhetoric. We know that. Right. That's been a big part of it. We can talk about our courts. That's bail reform that absolutely is not working. Uh, I think in Chicago, the, the superintendent there was talking about how many murder suspects are out on tether. So do we really believe that these folks are out being Boy Scouts? No, they're not. They're continue to commit violence uh, in, in our cities. But nobody is holding the courts accountable. Nobody's saying, wait a minute, we need to come to the table. We need to do a better job in determining how we execute reform. We don't just in a blanket way uh, return violent suspects into our neighborhoods. Uh, we know that the recent tragedy involving that six-year-old that was killed oh, yeah. uh, uh, in, in Chicago, I believe, and, and the person was out waiting uh, to go to court on other crimes. So what's it going to take to get the attention? And here's the sad part of it, John, and I got to tell you, nobody talks to the people who live in vulnerable communities. Nobody talks to the victims. And that's why when some of these reckless politicians who get up and make statements like, we need to dismantle, reimagine, 
defund the police. Well, the people you represent, what do they really want? Are we even talking to them? Because as a police chief, I knew what they wanted. They wanted constitutional effective policing. And I know that. So the more moderates on the left now are trying to back away from the whole defund. But the problem is they said, well, we want to hire more police. And I think the DOJ uh, recommendation was hire more police to focus on community policing. Look, I'm a ardent, strong advocate for community policing. I know the effectiveness of it. But right now, short term, we have got to stop the bleeding. And that's not happening. And stop the bleeding means we'll just use New York as an example. They abolished their proactive crime fighting unit. We've got to go out, arrest those violent, predatory criminals. And then once that happens, they need to be prosecuted. And the courts have got to do their job. Let's not blame it on the pandemic. Say, well, the courts are closed. What about the backlog cases? Here's what I know. American police department stayed open throughout this pandemic. At one time, I had 650 members of our department, myself included, quarantined or fighting COVID. But we didn't shut down. We continued to do the work of the people. We had to restructure, but we continued to do the work. Such a heroic effort, and we forget it. We forget the toll that the pandemic took on our first responders and our police officers. You, you've talked about this dialogue. The media is full of discussions. There's a candidate going to be the, not likely the next prosecutor for New York City, wants to let everybody out of prison except those who are uh, first-degree murderers, first-degree rapists. You've got the city of Minneapolis talking about getting rid of, di- disbanding their police department. But in your city, they just did a poll of black residents. And by a nine-to-one margin, nine-to-one margin, they want more officers on the street, not less. How is that message getting drowned out to the elitists who control the purse strings and the policies in our cities, in our states, and in our Washington capital? Well, I've been saying it. It's the Rashida Tlaibs of the world that, that spew out these uh, unfounded, I mean, these reckless comments that don't represent anybody but herself. She's an attention seeker. We know that. And, and so what needs to happen, the more moderates need to stand up in a very bold voice and reject those statements. But it just doesn't happen. And, and I got to tell you, you know, uh, I've gotten contacts from a police officer from across this country. Uh, and when I talk about these issues, one of the things they also say is unfortunate that our chief is not standing up and supporting us because many of these chiefs are focused on what job, their job retention, not the retention of the jobs for the men and women who serve. And I'm not making a broad brush statement, but it's a fact because they have mayors that they're aligned with. Look at what we saw last summer with Portland and Seattle. Oh, yeah. The Seattle mayor now all of a sudden has found her way. We need to hire police. Last year, she called it a summer of love. She let the mob take over six city blocks, ran police officers out of their precincts. And when there was a crime in this autonomous zone, police officers couldn't even go in and conduct a proper investigation. Shameful. And and I got to tell you, and I'm I'm certainly not going to criticize that chief. She had a a, a tough, tough go at it. But, you know, if I had run up against that in in the city, 
that uh, I led as chief of police, I would have rejected it. I mean, I may have lost my job, but I will always stand for what's right. And these men and women deserve better. They deserve leaders, not just police chiefs, but the politicians. A core responsibility of a mayor, a governor, is public safety. So if you're not supporting the people doing the most difficult job in America, what are we talking about here, John? Uh, it's, a, it's a lost dialogue and it's got to be restored. You're doing something pretty amazing. There are not many people that go from being a police chief to running for political office, such as running for governor. What spurred you to do it? And what do you think you bring different to a debate when it comes to what you're going to do as a governor, as a, a leader of an entire state? How can you change this dialogue uh, if you're elected governor? Well, I got to tell you, John, it's no secret. Uh, look at our, our country right now. We're divided. Uh, we're Americans. Uh, I look at the state, divided. Uh, people are not talking, the left, not the right. Uh, that's not being an American citizen. We all have issues. You know, I look back at my experiences now having led three different, very different types of cities as chief of police. And the one thing that I always did coming in the door, I wanted to go to the ground. I wanted to build trust with the community, build trust uh, with the men and women who serve. I'm a servant leader. And that's what's so different. No, I'm not a politician. I'd be the first to admit that. But what I am, I'm a servant, a public servant. Uh, and, you know, I got to say, 44 years in this business, uh, I haven't had a bad day, as I like to oftentimes say. Uh, the last eight years coming home to, you know, certainly my home of Detroit, uh, the best eight years of my 44-year career. But that said, what I bring is so very different. is something called bold leadership, unafraid, unapologetic, doing the right thing for the right reasons. I'm not in bed with, with, with a group over here that says, well, you know, this, this whole business of play to pay. You know, you do this for me and I do this for you. Right. I'm not wired that way. We, have, we can never forget who we work for, whether it's at the level of the president, the governor, a mayor, the people we serve. And I, I think people forget that or they just don't care. And this is why I'm looking at this very seriously, because we have got to get back to the business. We are in trouble. And it's not just about uh, law enforcement or policing. Let's talk about the impact small business. Yeah, that's right. a big issue. It's a major issue. I've had, you know, one of the things I'm doing as I have launched this exploratory uh, committee, I'm having some real deep conversations uh, from our businesses. They're angry. They're frustrated. Uh, the labor force is uh, impacted. In fact, it's all about the handouts. Yeah. And then when... when they're keeping these, Oh, go ahead, sir. They, they, see, they sit in these seats of, and I won't say leadership, but influence and make statements that say, well, uh, I can't say definitively if people are not going to work because they're getting these government handouts. This is common sense. It is. That's the other thing about this equation that this is non-existent. Well, sir, leadership. I have a funny feeling. I have a funny feeling you're going to inject a lot of common sense and a lot of shakeup in the in the world of politics with your with your candidacy. I want to thank you so much for the time here today and also thank you for your public service. 44 years in law enforcement is a very big commitment.
Well, thank you, John. I appreciate you much. Look forward to the next time. All right. It's an honor to have had you on. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got a riveting discussion planned on critical race theory and failing schools. You won't want to miss it. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back, folks, from the break. Oftentimes, when we talk about issues in the media, we talk about politicians and institutions and processes. But in the end, it's real people who are impacted. Soccer moms and dads, immigrants, workers, students. When Washington's actions cause gas prices to go up a dollar a gallon, someone in real America has to make a tough choice to fill the tank or save some money from groceries. When a school board teaches, teaches a student they should consider the color of their skin and those of their peers first because it will determine their life's outcome, a parent must deal with the fallout. Joining us now is a woman who may look a little bit familiar to you. Last year, she gained media attention when she was caught nodding in agreement at a Trump rally. But Mayra Jolie is far more than an internet sensation. She is a real life mom and an immigration lawyer whose experiences and the impact of government on her community have led her to run for Miami mayor in the next election. Mayra, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you very much for having me, John. It is an honor to have you on. Um, you have your own family. You work daily with families in need uh, uh, through your, your law firm. Tell us how the current economic pressures from COVID-19 and the rapidly rising inflation and crime are creating hard choices for people of color and every, everyday working Americans as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you say, I can see it firsthand when the families that I have to help in their immigration, legal navigation of the immigration system. Um, and rightfully so, the politicians have totally this disconnection with the real family on the ground. I consider myself like a Jenny from the block. I know every aspect of what happening on the ground when families have to fill up their tanks. I go to the gas station and I can see the right the rise of the price gas. I go to the grocery store. I am active in the community and I can see that just for the grace the grace of God, I'm able to make me ends meet. But so many people, even within my own family, see my sisters cannot make it because of this uh, skyrocketing infla inflation. And we don't see any sign of, of ending. What we see is just, just the, the spending. It's like we as moms, we have a budget at home that we have to watch. It doesn't take a great economic just to, to know that if you don't have it going coming in, you cannot spend it like if it was just uh, growing on, on trees. But the politicians are spending the money that we are producing. The government doesn't make anything, doesn't produce anything. And that's why it's easy to spend it. Yeah, it is in a challenging time. Now, there's a movement underway in America from the local school board in Loudoun County, Virginia, to the governor's mansion in Florida to address a new education curriculum called critical race theory. 
It has stirred controversy and passion all across America. Tell us why this new curriculum, which is now banned in Florida, by the way, is so troubling to you as a parent. It's troubling because it's teaching me and my kid, wants me to teach my kid that because of his, the color of his skin, he cannot make it in society. And that's something that is totally flawed. Because I am an immigrant myself. I am a black woman from the from the Caribbean. I am also Hispanic, and I had made it to the top. Not only because I gained notoriety with Donald Trump, but also because I made it on my own with the opportunities. I was an attorney in the Dominican Republic when I came here. I had the opportunity through financial aid that then I pay myself to go to a school and get my degree. Right now, I have one of the, the brightest and, and nicest boutique uh, law firms, and I have 10 employees that I, that is something that I make myself. So how can critical race theory can be taught in school to take my, to tell my son that he will never made it? My husband is white American, as white as you can find it. Why my child is gonna be taught in school that his father is an, is an oppressor and his mother is a victim? What kind of system is that? How can that not be viewed as it is? It's just a circular fighting squad in which all these people that are pointing at each other are eventually destroy themselves. Critical race theory has no place in our school. I'm not a victim. My son is not a victim. My husband, as a white American, red-blooded American, straight male, is not an oppressor. And whomever wants to start keep pushing that can in school, we as mothers, we are going to be. It's not the first time that I had, I had done it. We're going to be in front of the school board if necessary, and we're going to change ourselves to the ground to avoid this from coming through our schools. Thank God we have Governor Ron DeSantis, who is a real father, a real man that is putting things where they belong. Critical race theory is just a theory, and they're using our children as the experiment. And if the whole system falls, it's not their children, it's ours. We have to fight for our own. Yeah, we sure do. And that need for self-reliance that you talked about in your own experience, it gets lost in the debate so often. I want to ask you about something else. While this curriculum is sucking up a lot of oxygen in Washington, this critical race theory, there's a much more serious issue that's been pushed aside. A decades-long record of failing schools in urban areas, and they're trapping young students, particularly Blacks and Latinos, in a cycle of poverty. Uh, how do we change that tide? How do we break that uh, record of failed schools? That record of first school is, is, is confronted by calling these people out. And also, not only calling them out as if they're going to apologize and that will be enough. We have to bring back to school, we have to bring civics to a school. What is failing in our school is that we are not giving our children any direction. The school board is just there being manipulated by the teachers' union and by the party that the teachers' union are in bed with. We are not going to tolerate that any longer. We have to teach our children civics, the law for the country that is giving them that, ed that education for free for them. But it's not for free because somebody is paying for it. We have to bring God to the schools. We have to bring a spiritual direction to the school. We are not going to keep glorifying criminals to teach the black 
students that the criminal is the leader, is the icon, is the role model that they should follow. That's what we have to do. We have to bring civics to our schools and we have to bring spiritual direction. If you don't want to bring God to school, well, the school is going to go down to hell the same way it's happening now. I am not responsible for the wrongdoings of parents of other children. I know how I how I, I, I am raising my child to be an upright citizen, a person who will take care of himself first and then take care of the people around him. I am not going to be responsible for somebody else's mistakes and I'm and a part of, I don't want to be part of that society that is going to be rewarding failure. Uh, that is a key thing, Mayor. There's no doubt about it. Just a quick question. We have about 30 seconds left. Crime, it's a big issue in urban areas, particularly minority neighborhoods are disproportionately affected. What do you think Washington should do to try to help out? More policing, more caps, more money for the police. There is no secret. If there is no policing, God forbid that the criminal has a good mind. Mayra, thanks for spending so much time with us tonight, helping us understand what's going on in real America. It is deeply treasured. When we come back, folks, from the break, it's time to take a trip to Main Street, USA, to see what's going on with small businesses in Black America. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to this Just the News Real America Voice special, The War on Black America. Now, one of the truisms of the pandemic is that Black America was disproportionately hit by COVID-19. And as the country tries to reemerge from that pandemic, Black small businesses are still struggling to get back on their feet. A recent Census Bureau report provided a remarkable glimpse into the state of Black America's Main Street. It found African-Americans own more than 124,000 businesses, with 28.5% of those businesses in the healthcare and social assistance sector, the very sector that was hit hard by uh, the pandemic. Now, that was also the highest percentage of any minority group in America. As the recovery now takes effect, inflation, worker shortages, and other economic pressures are complicating the picture. Here to give us a sense of what's going on is Alfredo Ortiz, the president and CEO of the small business group, Job Creators Network. Alfredo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Uh, thanks for having me, and, and you're absolutely correct. I mean. Uh, b black business owners in the black community really disproportionately hit with COVID. And so uh, one of the last things they need are, you know, many of these Biden policies being put forth. Um, it's really, really negatively going to impact uh, the black community. Yeah, no, it's a super challenge. And you're hearing more and more people talk about it now. A lot of people need to remember it was Job Creators Network that was one of the main proponents of the PP program, the government program that helped small businesses stay afloat during the pandemic. But as the recovery has begun, these small businesses are now seeing all sorts of other challenges. How are these challenges affecting the proprietors and innovators on Main Street America, including Black-owned small businesses? Yeah, absolutely. And it really is, John, the small business community uh, overall, whether it's Black, Hispanic, Asian, white, doesn't really matter, you know, Democrat, Republican, independent. 
it is the entire small business community that has been so negatively impacted under this Biden administration. I mean, we've never seen something uh, this quick attack a community the way uh, these, these regulations and plans are. When you look at, uh, simply enough, what's going on right now, the, what we call it the BIT, the Biden inflation tax, um, that is real for so many of our small business owners. Um, and you're actually seeing the, the, the shrinking menu, I also call it, because that's one of the ways they're trying to offset some of the inflation. But but these are real numbers. When you start seeing the, the, the staggering inflation number, 6 7%, and I actually predict, John, by the end of the year, we'll probably see something closer to 9 to 10% inflation. Wow. I mean, we are really, really looking at Jimmy Carter 2.0 between higher taxes, more regulations, um, you know, pushes for higher minimum wages. I mean, everything that any small business right now um, uh, really cannot afford to do, the Biden administration is pushing for. It just really shows, John, just how out of touch this Biden administration, frankly, the Democrats are and the, the, the really the war that they have declared on small business. Look, they hate small business, John. They hate it because they can't control them. They can't corral them. Uh, they can't get in bed with them like they can with big business. And so what are they going to do? They're going to destroy them so they become wards of the state. Yeah, such an important dynamic playing out right in front in the middle of America yeah. uh, on Main Street. Uh, you've talked about this inflation, and it has both short-term and long-term impacts on uh, black small businesses. Short-term, everything costs more to make, right? And people have That's less right. money to, to pay. Long term, the only tool the government has to really fight inflation is to raise interest rates, which makes the cost of borrowing money more and more expensive. That makes it harder for black businesses to expand. Descri describe that, that uh, flight stick and the difficulties that businesses are going to see short and long term with that inflationary pressure. Yeah, that's right, John. And, and it really is here at separation. It's kind of a tale of two cities. You've got big businesses and then you really got small businesses impacted by this Look, big business can access the capital markets, the credit markets so easily versus a small business community. I had a small business myself, and I remember one of the primary ways that I funded it was through pulling out cash advances of my credit card or lines of credit out of my house. You know, mortgaging everything that you have, basically, to make payroll, to be able to make sure that your employees are being paid. That's the life of the small business owner, the stress of that, right? The large business community doesn't have those challenges, really, because, again, they can access the, the, you know, those financial markets. Uh, they can hedge against some of the inflation. Small businesses don't have the ability to do all that. And that's why you know, we're so concerned about this war on small business, because, frankly, they have no protection uh, you know, against, against this onslaught, again, of you know, higher regulations, higher taxes, you know, the push, for example, again, of, of, of you know, increased minimum wages. Uh, we saw President Biden. Uh, you know, reach over the, his podium and whisper, maybe they should pay them higher wages when they when, when there was a question about the labor shortage. Um, this is not a uh, this is not an issue of small businesses not paying their people enough. This is an issue of they're trying to compete against large government, against the U.S. government and these the, the these benefits, for example, that the government is handing out left and right, borrowing, you know, trillions of dollars. Uh, you know, to create, uh, you know, the, the, these kinds of disparities in the sure. labor force. So, you know, it's really, really tough, again, for these small businesses to compete at the same level that these large businesses are. And I think, you know, when you have something like an Amazon uh, out there lobbying for $15 minimum wage, when they're already above $15, you know, uh, minimum wage, um, you have to stop and wonder, why would they be doing that? Um, you know, are they maybe doing that for, uh, you know, for, for, to, so they can actually take out their competitors? Look, we, we, we saw what happened when Dodd-Frank 
uh, pass, right? We saw 2,000 small business community banks, which, by the way, disproportionately hurt the black business community when those yep. community banks went out they because did. they couldn't take on those regulations, John, the way large yeah. banks did. And what happened? The big banks got bigger and the small banks went away. We've got about a minute left, and there's been a, a really fun, unique phenomenon that some of the people who say they're trying to help the black community actually have inflicted pain through protests and other things. And it was your group that made headlines a few weeks ago when you sued Major League Baseball for moving the All-Star right. game for Atlanta just to protest a new Georgia election integrity law. And while the courts rejected the suit, it highlighted an extraordinary toll that that political decision had on the mostly Black-owned businesses of Atlanta. Can you describe the $100 million-plus in losses your lawsuit brought to light? Yeah, absolutely, John. These were real losses for real people. $100 million to the Atlanta business community. You know, and we got to remember, the Atlanta business community is 51% Black uh, you know, versus, for example, Denver, which is 9%. Right. Uh, you know, so from, from that perspective, I mean, it disproportionately hurt you know, the black small business community in the state of Atlanta, uh, excuse me, in the state of Georgia. And, 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 you know, that's a very local level. I mean, we have been talking about the macro impact of the Biden administration. But remember that President Biden, to this uh, point, he also actually uh, very publicly, if you remember the ESPN interview, uh, he very publicly was, was pushing for the move out of Atlanta to Denver. Uh, you know, to, to basically, uh, you know, unfairly label and characterize the new Georgia voting laws as Jim Crow 2.0. Sure when in did. fact, we absolutely know that all those voting laws did is they made it easy to vote and hard to cheat. They hate the hard to cheat part, I guess. Really important stuff. Well, listen, this impact on black owned businesses, small business is something we're going to be tracking here at Just the News and Real America's Voice. Yeah. Alfredo, thank and, and, you and so John, much. Oh, John, oh, John, can I add one more quick thing, if I may? Please. OK, so the PRO Act, I want people to really take uh, a lot of attention to the PRO Act, if I may, because that is actually going to potentially impact this idea called joint employer. Um, it's going to impact the franchise community in a very, very negative way if that ever were to pass. And, and I'll tell you that the franchise business was one of the primary ways and is one of the primary ways that the black business community yeah. actually gets a piece of that American dream. So w watch for that, John. That's an important one. We're gonna put a highlight on that for sure. Alfredo, thanks Thank for you. all that you and Job Creators Network do to keep us informed about the real progress of Main Street. Folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got a special guest to close the show tonight, one of the great civil rights icons, Robert Woodson, joining us right after the break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, folks. We have a remarkable guest to wind up our show tonight. For more than six decades, Robert Woodson has fought for freedom in America. In the 1960s, he did so alongside other giants of the civil rights movement, like Vernon Jordan, John Lewis, and John Conyers, and through emblematic organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League. After the epic victories of the civil rights era, he diverged from some of his colleagues to focus on the importance of empowering black neighborhoods and their residents to succeed, a mission he pursues with vigor to this very day. 
In recent months, he also has become one of America's most cogent voices, warning against revisionist histories like the 1619 Project and new race ideologies like critical race theory. And his new book, Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers, has people all over the world talking. Bob, it is an honor to have you join us on the show today. And I'm pleased to be here. Uh, listen, I want to start with a column you wrote uh, a few months ago in the Wall Street Journal, which you declared that Martin Luther King Jr. would have unequivocally denounced the tenets of the New York Times 1619 project that anti-black racism is somehow inherent to America's DNA. I wonder if you could explain why you are so deeply troubled by many of the new civil rights warriors and what they are preaching to America. Well, first of all, it's a, perver it's a perversion of the civil rights legacy. Who we fought against racism. Uh, critical race theory is the reintroduction of racism in the name of equity. And, and so we rejected this. And, and so that's why uh, no individual or nation should be defined by its birth defect. And slavery was America's birth defect. But America is a country that is founded on the whole notion of redemption and transformation. And so um, we believe 1619 that uh, is, is demanding that America's uh, past and, and present be viewed through the prism of race is wrong, is destructive, and is hostile to the values of our founders and hostile to the, the, the virtues and values that enabled low, uh, blacks to survive slavery and, and, and Jim Crow. You know, you, you saw race and racism up close and personal in the 50s and 60s, and you even famously helped calm violence during one of the race riots in that turbulent time. There are some today who claim we have been running in place all that time since that when it comes to racial progress, that white America remains the oppressor of black Americans just like a century or more ago. How do you judge those claims? Well, first of all, it's just an absolutely lie to say that the Problems confronting large numbers of blacks today of uh, out of wedlock births and violent neighborhoods and disinvestment is somehow related to a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. Through our essays in 1776 Unites, we demonstrate that when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best, that blacks were never defined by oppression or Jim Crow, that we built a, our own railroad in Baltimore. We built hotels, insurance companies in Chicago, in uh, 19, uh, 1929, uh, we had uh, 731 Black-owned businesses, 100 million in real estate assets. And this was true all over the nation. Uh, but this is a part of, of the American history that the radical left would like us to ignore. And so our essays uh, uh, are able to bring this to light, because if we were able to achieve parity and sometimes superiority in the presence of virulent racism, then the question is, why are blacks failing in institutions run by their own people in the last 50 years? Yeah, that's a profound question. There's no doubt about it. Now, you've been outspoken about a new form of racism, racism what you call the racism of low expectations. You've strongly denounced uh, President Biden's argument that voter ID requirements are somehow a new form of Jim Crow and that defunding the police is somehow what black communities really want. Describe for our audience how the African-American community views this debate over these new solutions being offered by the neoliberals. Well, first of all, if you just look at the numbers, 80% of blacks polled are against defunding the police. 60% polled do not believe that racial discrimination today is a principal barrier for them to have a successful life. 
And so it's really a small uh, percentage of elites, both black and white progressives, who are pushing this fake narrative. And they're being aided and vetted by the mainstream press, who refuses to ask the critical questions. And it's really unfortunate that black lives are being sacrificed in order to get black votes. It's yeah. all a political comment. Yeah, no, it is a lot of politics. And uh, I recently interviewed a young African-American father, and he said he rejected critical race theory being taught to his young daughter because he believed it would force her to consider skin color first before anything else. Instead of what he said Martin Luther King said was the most important, the character of the person inside. Is that father an anomaly or emblematic of where most Amer African-Americans view themselves? He's representative. We all understand as... Uh Chuck Swindell pointed out, 10% of who we are is defined by external circumstances. 90% is our attitude towards the 10%. And that, uh, that has always been true. In, um, in one of our essays, we point out the 1930 to 1940, during the period of depression, when the unemployment rate among whites was 40, 30, 25% and a black 40%, we had the highest marriage rate of any group in society Elderly people could walk safely in our community without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. And so it is important for, for the nation, black, white, and everyone to know that only in America could someone be born a slave and die a millionaire, as has been the case for quite a few that we identified in our essays. Uh, what a remarkable... Could this happen. Yeah, what a remarkable record. And it gets overshadowed all day long in the mainstream media today. Uh, all throughout this show, we've had experts and, and leaders really talking about the disconnect between what Washington's talking about and what black America really wants. And I wonder if you could help us understand what do you see as the three biggest challenges facing black America and how can we get them addressed by the elites in Washington? The biggest challenge facing black, low in, you cannot generalize about any people, low incomes. Right. When you do and you try to apply remedies, the benefit always goes to them at the top. And so it is important to disaggregate every group. No group is the same. And therefore, the biggest challenge is, is not critical race theory, it's, ra it's radical race theory is what we are thinking. What we need is, again, is the reintroduction of grace, that Dr. King and others ex exemplified that, that we must pursue upward mobility for all of those who are struggling economically at, at the bottom of the rung of the ladder. The biggest problem is class. It is not race. The very fact that the the uh, the leading cause of death for young blacks is homicide among low-income whites in Appalachia. It's, it's prescription drugs, and and the murder and the suicide rate among upper-income groups in Silicon Valley is six times the national average. So there's a moral and spiritual freefall occurring in America that is consuming people across class and race lines. In order for us to fill that emptiness in the souls of those children, we must take race off the table. So the Woodson Center through 1776 is trying to deracialize race and disaggregate poverty so that we can remove race out as, a, as a divider and unite in the nation to cure and arrest this moral and spiritual freefall that is consuming our nation. Uh, it is a big challenge. We've got about a minute left, Bob. I want to ask you, when you look at the last couple of years of the Trump presidency, we began to see some statistical movement of black unemployment going down, black poverty going down, black wealth going up. 
As you look out, do you see any ideas in Washington that you think are working or will work if Washington put its muscle behind it? I think we need to continue to pursue not a race strategy, because whenever you do, it always benefits upper income people. Just like Coca-Cola uh, talked about, well, to address the racial inequality, they're going to hire more black lawyers. What does that have to do with a black woman struggling in the inner city? And so that's so what we need to do is take race off of the table and really pursue upward mobility for all people and come and find out what are the internal strategies we must help people to become redeemed and transformed uh, and overhaul their own attitude and then programs and assistance can work. If you, if you offer assistance to people whose problems start with moral failings and you don't address that moral failing, then offering them help in the form of programs and money will injure them with the helping hand. What a remarkable idea. Bob Woodson, on behalf of a grateful nation, we thank you for your tireless work on behalf of civil rights and the common sense approach you have followed in trying to make America better. We're grateful also for your time today. All right, folks, that wraps up our Just the News Real America's Voice special tonight. Sometimes talking about race in America feels awkward or overly politicized, but it's a conversation we need to have. The truth is black America is struggling under the weight of many challenges from surging violence and lost economic opportunities to apathy and low expectations. Today, we tried to bring you voices and ideas that you may not have been offered before by a monolithic mainstream medium. The fact is, the American experiment is still going strong. And contrary to many naysayers, much progress has been made in race relations, but much more progress needs to be made, especially in black America. The question so many of our guests tonight raised is, is the ruling class in Washington on the wrong track? It's something we all need to think about and I hope you can do so, better informed by the facts and conversations we offered you tonight. We thank you for watching and ask that God bless you and this great country that is the United States of America. Good night.